Welcome to Learning Minnesota, connecting people one conversation at a time. Today's guests are Diana Lowry, a licensed elementary teacher in Minnesota. Much of Diana's educational career has focused on culturally responsive teaching and professional development to increase cultural competence in teachers and administrators, and Kevin Scora Brown. Kevin is a founding partner with Cultural Fluency Associates, LLP. For the past 12 years, he's developed, presented, and facilitated diversity, inclusion, and cultural development work with individuals and organizations striving to live in line with their values and missions by becoming more culturally fluent and inclusive. Our topic today is cultural competency. Diana and Kevin, you know what? Let's talk. But before we do, if you'd be so kind as to share a little bit about your story and maybe how you came to be able to work together. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, so I came to the world of education as an adult. Um, it was a second career for me. And pretty early in my education to be a teacher, I realized that there were some, some serious gaps uh, noticed through my own experience as a student when I was growing up and what I was learning um, in teacher education programs. So right away that became an interest for me as to how can I as a teacher help fill these gaps and connect with some students in a way that I didn't feel that I was connected with um, as a student. And through that process, uh, I met Kevin. He was one of my teachers in one of my college courses and we just really connected and had um, you know, similar ideas and thoughts and philosophies on things. So I think we've worked really well together. And Kevin. And and for me, this work really comes from, it really started for me, I think, back in my college days, um, and it was around justice. I've been involved in justice work for a very long time, um, anti-racism work, anti-classism work, anti-sexism work, homophobic, you know, working around homophobia, um, and had been doing that work for a very long time. Um, and, in, and at one point, I was, I was living where I am now, which is in Duluth, and a colleague of mine, a woman of color, said, hey, Kevin, there's this program. It's about anti-racism. I think, you, you know, you'd, it'd be good for you. And I'm like, oh, I think I'm, I'm good on that stuff. Um, and this friend of mine, Nam, she, she looked at me, she looked me in the eye and she said, Kevin, I think this would be good for you. And what it, what, and I, so I went and it was a series of like 12 or 14 weekends, half day at a time. And what I learned in that process was where I fit as a white male in all of these systems of oppression. Um, so I really came to understand how systems are developed and how all of us participate in them. And so while pr previously I always thought about, you know, it was racism was something that was in other people's lives. Sexism was in other people's lives. And I understand that as a white male, racism and sexism, or more, more accurately, male privilege and white privilege are parts of who I am and parts of my life. And so, if, so I found my place in this work. Um, and ever since then, this is what I've been doing, is, is trying to um, learn for myself and help other people understand how we fit into these systems that um, work for some people, but not for others. Right. Thank you. It sounds to me like the two of you really complement each other. I'm both sharing your stories. It sounds to me that each of you had maybe some sort of an aha or a moment or maybe a series of small moments that really helped you to discover, like you said, where you, where you are in these, in these larger systems and how um, everything is really interwoven and, and it impacts on a much greater scale. 
Um, so thank you for all of the work that you are doing. And I'm excited as well to um, see the work that you are also um, preparing to uh, bring out into the workforce, or I should say beyond education. And we can talk more about that at the end too with Cultural Fluency Associates. Um, so really to start off with, you know, and the majority of our viewers and listeners are, are coming to us right now um, from the world of education and they are not only seeking to learn, uh, but to grow and to really expand their awareness and understanding. Um, but licensed staff are required to have training um, in right now, it's is termed cultural competency. So maybe we should start with just the, the basics. What is meant by the term cultural competency? Cultural competency really is um, being able to effectively communicate with people cross-culturally. And I think that really starts with understanding your own culture and who you are as a person. And just as Kevin said, where you fit into this whole thing of, of you know, privilege and oppression and, um, and cultural biases and all of that sort of thing. Understanding that in every situation in your life, you bring your own culture and your own lens to every situation and first realizing that so that you can better understand um, when situations happen when you come upon things understanding that you're seeing that through a, a specific perspective that is uniquely your own and that somebody else may be approaching that same thing from a completely different angle and being able to to navigate that in a way that is is helpful and um, effective when you're communicating mm -hmm. do you want to add to that kevin you know, I think, I mean, Diana explains that really, really well. Um, the piece that I'll, that I'll maybe add to that is that um, I've stopped using the term cultural competence um, some time ago. Um, and that's why sort of the, the company that, that um, I'm a part of is cultural fluency. Because competence is like, you know, many of us who are adults passed the driver's test at some point. For some of us, it was a long time ago. We became competent, like check mark. I did that. And so competence has this connotation of like one and done, you pass some kind of me measure and then you're done. And so we use, I like to use the word, the term cultural fluency, because fluency brings a, that connotation of we always are learning, we're always developing, um, whether it's our first language or a second, third, fourth language. Fluency is that notion of it continues to happen. And I think that the definition, Diana, provided um, suggests that. This isn't an end of the road done kind of thing. It's like, how do I show up? How do I learn about myself? How do I learn about others? How do I navigate those, those cultural spaces between my own cultural frameworks, my own cultural lens and someone else's? Absolutely, I am. So in, in both of you sharing, I started to think to myself, so Diana, you said it's, it's from the, the lens from which you view things. Um, and so it starts with you. And, and then Kevin, you touched on that, that then it kind of, it expands in, in terms of being fluent and always learning and always growing and recognizing that there are, there are there's always um, room to, to boost your awareness or to broaden, I should say, your awareness. So, uh, and coming from my position currently as a social emotional learning coordinator, when I work with, with students, it's, we start with the self-awareness um, so that they're able to manage their emotions and identify. So it's, it starts with the self, I guess, is what I'm getting to. And then once I under, they understand themselves better, then we start to work on 
recognizing and interpreting how others are feeling based on you know some of their facial or expressions that sort of a thing so would you say that being being or working on being culturally fluent is kind of follows somewhat of that system where first it's internal you need to know who you are um, and what lens you're looking at things before you're able to really expand and look at others? I would definitely agree with that. Um, it, it's understanding that everything you look at and everything you see and everything you hear and everything you touch, you are filtering that through your cultural lens. And, and culture is not just you know race or ethnicity. There's a lot of different pieces that go through culture and a lot of different facets that make up every person. Um, I'm a teacher, I'm a mother, I'm female, I'm Ojibwe, I have all of these different roles and each of those contributes to how I look at the world and how I interact with the world. And by understanding that in myself, I can be uh, more tolerant, more understanding, more accepting and learning of how other people and more curious about how other people are seeing the world as well. Yeah. So I would, the piece I would add to that, and I absolutely agree with all of that, that it is about the self and then understanding how other people have their own cultural frameworks. The other piece that comes into this is understanding how our systems are built. Um, it's like there's these, you know, it's, it's two lanes. It's the self, you know, the cultural work, the cultural awareness work, cu cultural self-awareness, cultural other awareness. And then it's also understanding how systems of privilege and oppression have been constructed um, how they continue to be perpetuated and how we participate in. So sometimes people like to have this conversation just as a, oh, I'm different and you're different and let's talk about how we're different. But that conversation, absent the conversation about power, about how identities, how maleness is infused with power, how whiteness is infused with power, becomes a less than complete conversation. Because that shows up in our schools as well. It's not just that people are different, it's that their difference is, is, is infused with degrees of power. And quite possibly caused. I mean, the lens that I'm, I'm viewing the world um, with is, has been created by some of those systems that I don't even, you know, until now, and, and hopefully I continue to, um, to learn and grow, but I didn't know that they existed. And so therefore my lens that, I, that I'm viewing things um, with might have some cracks or some gray spots where I need to, I need to look and identify and address those. Yeah. yeah, and I'd also like to add to what Kevin said. That is a whole other piece of it that often gets overlooked, particularly in in trainings, um, as far as the cultural competency. You know, as I've mentioned and we've talked a lot about being yourself and recognizing that. Um, but particularly when we come to school systems and recognizing, as Kevin has said, um, the systems, the system that our students are learning in and spending so much of our time in these these racial power structures are integrated into that system um, and that is something that definitely needs to be um, addressed first of all recognized and then dismantled at some point um, but recognizing that they're there and that's what our students are learning in every single day is important thank you for bringing that up yeah mm -hmm. thank you i don't know if you see my face but just how powerful it is to um to say, recognize, identify, and dismantle. And it sounds crazy um, when you're talking about education because that's such a huge, you know, I mean, it's, it's there are many systems within um, this, the system of education. And gosh, it's hard to, 
unlearn, if that makes sense. You know, you go so long through the, the traditional system when you are growing up. And then as an educator, you know, I try my best not to follow a lot of what I, how I was taught and, you know, what I experienced, but it, there's still hidden pieces in there that I know I am probably doing a disservice. So how do you do that and take that all down? Um, but I'm glad that you said too. I mean, it starts with that, that building of awareness. So um, you definitely piqued my curiosity and I'll be asking a lot more questions on that. Um, so we kind of talked about, uh, you know, what, what does it mean or how does a, per, or how does a person become more culturally competent? And, you know, we talked about really it's about recognizing and looking not only in at yourself um, through your lens, starting to broaden that into uh, the um, learning about others, but then understanding that there are systems in place that are maybe for lack of better terms, doing damage as well, or, or maybe restricting um, people from being able to really expand and, and grow. So what, um, what would you say though might be a good first step and and I'm thinking right now all of the schools that I have um, had the privilege to work in have had some sort of a PLC professional learning community a weekly thing or a book study and there have been many many books that we have read and many many you know like we sit down we talk about a chapter we talk about the ahas um, but when we're thinking education and we're thinking we need, we need to get a move on this, I mean, the sooner that we can start to make the change, these students then will begin to grow much more exponentially in terms of recognizing um, that what they have is of incredible value to this world. So what are some things that a, a, an educator would do to become more culturally competent? Um. As a classroom teacher, there's some things I think you can do pretty quickly, pretty easily. Um, the first thing, and a lot of teachers do this already, and it's not necessarily, um, maybe not necessarily thought of as being culturally competent, but show and tell. Letting your students come to school as who they are and share what they are and, and the things that they, um, that they value and respecting that, you know, and teaching as a classroom culture. Um, it's okay if so-and-so brings in this and it's different and you don't know what it is. It's a chance to learn about each other and encouraging that sort of classroom community and that culture of acceptance of no matter who you are. Um, a lot of teachers do things like that already. So that's really important to let your students come to school as, as who they are. Um, quite often, especially in my experience as a student of color, um, when you walk in the door, you leave your color behind. So you leave your ethnicity behind because you want to fit in. And creating a classroom where students feel that they can be who they are. They can be poor. They can be black. They can be white. They can be whoever or whatever. They can be Jewish. And it's okay. They don't have to shed that when they walk in the door. They're accepted and, and respected um, for who they are. So that's one thing I think teachers can do really easily. Um, the other thing is looking at curriculum, and this is a much broader area, but looking at curriculum um, that's assigned by the district, looking for gaps. Who is not represented? Who do we not see in this literature? Who do we not see when we're talking about math and science? Are we including women? Are we including people of color of different religions? Um, so that students from those um, non-dominant society um, cultures and communities can be reflected and learn about themselves. So often when I was in school, it was, um, it didn't really feel relevant to me because I was learning about them 
and I never got to learn about me. I was never in the curriculum except as an historical, you know, as an Ojibwe person in northern Minnesota, you know, this is where the Indian used to live. Um, and unfortunately, that is still the message that we're giving today. Um, so whoever the students are being inclusive that way, so the students feel that I am a part of this curriculum, I'm relevant in this classroom and in this culture. I could go on and on about that. But I, I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, Kevin, I know you have, you have um, an, or not an idea, but you know, a, I guess I, I'm going to let you talk about it. You had sure. mentioned that it's sure. being able sure. to go and, through this program or system yeah. of, of seeing. Yeah. So, so I really appreciate Diana's grounding in terms of how does it happen on, you know, on the ground? Like, how do you do it in the classroom? Um, I'm going to answer the question at a different level, sort of like there's ground level and, you know, like, at a, at, so it's not they're inconsistent. They're just answering it from a different, at a different level. Um, so, so the, the, the framework that I've come to understand and really appreciate and see as really, really, really relevant is the intercultural development continuum, the model, intercultural uh, development model. Um, Mitch Hammer and, and Milton Bennett um, built it. And, um, and, and fundamentally, what it's, what it, and it, it's research-based. So they did research. They started with, they were studying students who went overseas from the United States, study abroad kind of programs, and how some, some students had powerful experiences and transformational experiences, and some people didn't. And they had varying experiences, and they studied all of that and they've developed this model. It's now been uh, validated across culturally, you know, many, many places, um, but fundamentally the model is that, that we all have an orientation and approach for engaging around cultural similarity and difference. So, and, there's, and they've identified five, five different orientations. And the first or early orientations are ones in which we operate, we engage all the things that Diana said, like we see the world, we interpret the world, we respond, we evaluate, we judge the world, and we respond to the world from our own cultural lens. And, and early in our development, we don't even recognize, at this stage, we're not even recognizing it is a cultural lens. It's like, these are just the glasses I wear. Like, I don't think about, oh, this is how I see the world through my glasses, because if they're built into my body, it's just the, it's just the way I've come to see the world. And, so, these, and the, so the early part of this model is recognizing that that's where we all start. We all start by, by responding to the world from our own cultural lens. And so, uh, Steph, you said earlier, like, we, we can't just rely on, well, that's how I learned. Like, school was like that for me, particularly when our students don't all look like us, don't all have our lived experience. Because it's like, doing school like it was for me when I was a kid might work for kids who are like me today, right? Yeah. That's not the whole classroom. And that's the problem with the model of it worked for me, it should work for everybody. Um, and it comes out of that monocultural or uh, mindset. Like the world is as I see it. And therefore, if I think a certain thing, then other people do too. If I value this, if I believe this, if this is my experience, it's other people's. And it's not a conscious thing that we do, but we just we operate out of that. And so if we get past that, and and frankly, a lot of people, of course, you know, and there's, 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 a, there's a, a measure, an inventory that anybody, well, you have to connect with someone who's a certified provider of it, um, but, but it's, a, it's available. So individuals, teachers could do an IDI, intercultural development inventory, and they could, they could get some input from 
a trained facilitator to understand those results and see where do they show up on this continuum? Um, what degree are they showing up based on their answers from a monocultural mindset? Um, one of the, the place that most folks land in this model is in the third stage. And the third stage is one in which we, we sort of have this notion of um, equality is sameness. Like as what we should do what everyone should have a rule for the same rule for everybody. Um, you know, the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you again, monocultural. It's like, I should treat both of you. Like I want to be treated like, what's the assumption there about our sameness. Right. And so most, most of us, according to this test, um, operate out of this, this middle zone in which we minimize difference. So we don't do what Diana says, which is like, bring in your uniqueness. We go, no, 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 no. We have some rules here. We're all gonna, we're all gonna line up the same. We're all gonna communicate the same. We're all gonna do this the same. So if someone's louder, if someone's this, we don't have room for that in this, in this everyone's the same model. Um, and so this, so for me, this intercultural development continuum and the intercultural development model helps us recognize how we're engaging around cultural similarity and difference. If we get past that, it's minimization is the name of that, the formal name of that, because we're minimizing difference. We're trying to focus on similarity. We're like, you know, we're going to get along best if we can all just focus on how we're the same. So these, the, it, you know, it's like, let's just focus on how, you know, we're all humans. Let's not talk about race. Let's just say we're, you know, we're all, I just actually saw a billboard. I was, I was out getting supplies to make uh, masks for the community. And I saw a billboard that said, the only race is human. There is no race other than the humankind. I'm like, that's minimization. That's like saying, let's not, let's pretend like race doesn't have an impact in our social world. Let's just focus on the fact we're all human. Well, we are all human, but our experiences in the world aren't all the same. So this model helps us understand how we're engaging around similarity and difference. If we get past that, and, and frankly, a large number of us haven't gotten past it yet, this place of minimization, then we get to where we, we, rec we recognize the importance of noticing difference. So we have to get there by understanding our own cultural framework. So the work is about understanding my own cultural lens. How was I raised? What, how have I come to see the world? How do I respond to the world? And then I'm in a place where I can start to see how other people do it without having a judgment, mine is better than theirs, right? So that's where we get to a cultural appreciation that's genuine and, and a recognition that all of our cultural frameworks come from some place. And, and at, 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 at first look, we need to be able to recognize they all have value. Now, it doesn't mean I have to be a complete relativist. There can be things about mine or other cultural frameworks that I go, mm, I'm not crazy about that value or that behavior or that something within that culture. So it doesn't require cultural relativism, but it requires an appreciation that all of our cultures in ways that were different have value within those cultures. So, and that's one of those I could go on and on about. So, so, so I would say that's, so, so what can people do? How do people become culturally, culturally fluent? They come to understand their own cultural lens. They come to understand their own cultural lens. They do the development so that their response, their automatic response can be not seeing it from how, how would I feel in that position to 
being able to say, be curious, how is this person responding and why are they responding? Mm -hmm. And then how do I, the third part and the, 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 the real task, the challenge then, is how do I bridge between my cultural framework and their cultural framework? How do I create that bridging so that my kids in the classroom, some of whom are quiet and some of whom are loud, some of them there's and some are that, how can I create, how can I recognize that they are that way for a reason? And that might be part of their cultural learning, their cultural, that's what they bring to the classroom. And how do I create spaces so that they get to be them? And it's not an or, it's an and. And we're still doing the work of, of the academic work as well, right? Because that has to happen as well, of the learning. But it, but it starts with that cultural self-awareness um, and, and moves from there. I want to just add a, a little story. Um, what Kevin just said really reminded me of, of something that happened in my own life with my son. Um, we went to his conferences when he was in middle school. And um, his, several of his teachers said, oh, you know, he's a great student, but he's really quiet. You know, and I know he knows the answer, but he never, you know, never raises his hand. He never participates. Um, you know, and kind of dinging him on it. Um, and so I explained to one of the teachers, that's how he was raised. Um, he's a smart kid. He's bright. He probably knows the answer to most of the questions that you're going to ask. But he was taught to not be boastful, to be humble, to not take up a lot of space in a, in a classroom. He's not the only person in there. That person's important. That person's important. That person's important. It's not all about him. Um, but in the, the system that school is, it's rather competitive. And um, it, it is what you know, what you know. And, and you're rewarded for, from my cultural lens, showing off. Um, but, oh, excuse me, but it's not, you know, so that was a cultural difference between what the teachers were expecting, what the system was built for, and what my son was displaying. I'm going to, so that uh, story sparked um, an experience that I had when I taught third grade, and um, I had a student who was Hispanic, uh, Julian, who came in I was, he, he um, started school at, in my building that for, so this was his first year in being with us. And so he was in our class. Um, but I noticed that not only was he quiet, but he would never look me in the eyes. Mm -hmm. And what I got, I, I mean, and I, I grew to learn and I was so curious rather than, um, you know, saying you need to speak up or you need to participate more. I, I started to ask questions. Um, especially with our cultural liaison and you know what what might this be and um, you know and, and she described that that was part of their culture is not to not to look um, the adults in the eyes and I just it it made me somewhat frustrated that some of our grading was on speaking and listening and part of the rubric of a speaking grade is looking at everyone and enunciating in the volume of your voice. And I just felt crushed thinking, okay, so he's set up for failure in this, if that's what I have to, you know, assess his ability to be able to do. And so um, that was one of my, my learning moments where I knew I had to do something different and, um, you know, and, and not ask him to do something or be something that he, he wasn't, um, he, he wasn't raised or, um, you know, set out to, to be is that loud. And I like that you said too, that the showing off, uh, I also 
have done a lot of reading on introverts and extroverts and um, the power of, of introverts and being quiet and, and thinking and but the world is very much based on those who are more outgoing and more social and more kind of that buoyant have that so that that uh, when you describe that as well that that touched a little nerve because I, I totally see that with some of the students that um, mm -hmm. I've had the, the pleasure of being able to to serve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So, gosh, you both shared. So, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Before you jump in, yeah. I, I think your story illustrates that this work is both interpersonal, but it's a systemic piece. Yes. That the classroom, the educational system, the grading rubrics are built around cultural frameworks. Like, mm -hmm. there's a there's a cultural value in terms of looking people in the eye, being assertive, speaking up. Right. It's like you're supposed to boast. Like you know, you want to get a job in this country, you, be you better be able to sell yourself. And those are cultural values. And not everyone shares those cultural values. And so people who were raised, whose, whose being is contrary to, I'm going to go out and tell you what a great person I am, are in a disadvantage in those systems. And so mm -hmm. your story illustrates how we need to be focused not just on the one-on-one the -on -one interpersonal, but the systems that we're building, the classrooms, the norms, the expectations in the classrooms, and then of course beyond just the, my own classroom, the school, et cetera. So I want I just I wanted to take the opportunity to, to highlight the other last piece is that your curiosity is the intercultural skill of a of an of an intercultural mindset instead of a monocultural mindset. Because the reaction was not judgment from my view, but curiosity. And that's the key. If we can foster curiosity and difference, we're, we're moving ourselves beyond minimization into the acceptance range. So it's that curiosity. So, right. Thank yeah. you. Um, so I have a couple of questions from both of you. So Diana, when you talked about your experience or talking about in, in a school where, you know, you walk through the doors and you leave your color there and, and um, you go in. So what are your thoughts on, I know a lot of um, schools have embedded in their curriculum, um, like holiday things, or how does that look when you have something that you as a teacher are expected to teach, um, but you know that it's just one piece of one culture of one history point. You know what I'm saying? It, it, mm -hmm. I think we can spend every single day of a school year celebrating and, and talking and learning um, about different pieces, but it seems like the larger big corporations are deciding um, mm -hmm. that this is the most important. So how does a teacher, especially you know, when he or she has students that there are so many different events and celebrations and practices and beliefs and everything, how do you how do you navigate that when you're in a system that expects that or requires that of you? Uh, there, there's kind of two parts to that. Um, part of it is realizing that when you're a teacher, um, just like in every other every other uh, job, but particularly with teaching, because as a teacher, you need to realize that you are in a position of power. Whether you want to be, whether you see that or not, you are in a position of power. You are an authority figure, you know, for these students, and realizing that every teacher brings their themselves to it um, 
my own culture, what's important to me. It's just, it's part of who I am. It's naturally going to come out in my teaching. And that needs to be recognized as a teacher and moderated and, um, you know, bringing other cultures and talking to students and getting to, to learn about other things that are important to your classroom because your classroom makeup is different every year. And part of the, the systemic problems, I guess, are like you're saying with the holidays, you know, Christmas time when you come. So what I do in my classroom is we focus more um, on nature. I'm kind of a naturalist. That's who I am. So we, in my classroom, we celebrated the solstice. We talked about how it's the celebration of the return of the sun. Um, and then we have, you know, through other activities in school, is it's more seasonal based than particularly holiday based. And, but we did talk about like during, you know, we have our sharing time, what are you doing over the break? And some people would say, oh, we're celebrating Christmas, we're celebrating Hanukkah. Well, you know, what's, what's that all about? Tell us about it, you know? And, and they were able to share that stuff and not telling students, um, this is school, so we can't talk about religious stuff. It's, it's who they are. Just create, again, it's creating that classroom culture where the students can still just be who they are and feel that they can bring themselves to school. Um, one of the things regarding that, that, that kind of, kind of chaps my hide a little bit <laughs> is when we talk about, um, like November is uh, Native American month and February is Black History Month and, and all these things. And it's, it's good to recognize that, but when you set aside a certain time of the year to talk about this or talk about that, it separates it from the rest of the world. It automatically segregates that community, that celebration, those people from the world. And instead, um, I, I much prefer, and I talk to all my, I always make myself a resource to the schools that I work in, and we talk about this, you know, before we get to Thanksgiving, before we get to, to November and Native American month, don't just talk about Native Americans in November. Don't just talk about African Americans in February. The whole year, it should not be, the fact that we make it separate is part of the problem. It's not just part of life and part of who we are and part of our communities. Um, taking that special time to recognize this or that um, in itself separates it from, you know, from the rest of the community. So as a teacher, um, just realizing that whoever you are is going to come through and, you know, making equal time and finding out what's important to your students. I always ask parents and, and families at the beginning of the year, if there's a special talent or something that you know, whether it's, it's ethnic or a hobby, whoever, whatever your family's about, come in and share with us and teach us about it and making the space for those sorts of things to happen. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, Kevin, when you had talked about the continuum, I was kind of curious. So to me, when I think continuum, I think the ability to go forward and backward. Mm -hmm. um, but it sounded to me like there were more like levels where you start off in this way, just, just through your lens, not knowing, like you, you use the analogy with your glasses that I, I'm just, that's how I see things. And my, my lens is built in. So that's how everybody else sees things. Um, and then you, you kind of, you jumped to the third um, mm -hmm. level, part of the continuum or, or step in it and talking about how we're going to celebrate our sameness, which is, it's detrimental to the progress of being able to um, become culturally fluent. So that piqued my interest a little bit because I, I do see that a lot. And I think it's one of those, um, you know, we are all 
we are all the same in this world and nobody's different and you know we all should be celebrated and even in books you know that um but sometimes i feel myself that by going beyond that so to levels four and five if i'm not curious um but sometimes i feel a little nervous about going beyond that because i feel that either i may be doing something that's wrong or offensive or if i don't if i don't approach it in a curious manner and i'm wondering your thoughts on just people in general that they might be thinking that they're comfortable saying everybody is the same because they're uncomfortable saying there are everybody's different can you speak to that a little bit sure and and so what i hear and i'll and i'll speak to it from really from dominant frameworks like so so folks who who participate in dominant society and and it mostly aligns with who they are so um i think it can be different for folks whose who whose identities are marginalized uh, so for folks who are white for folks who are male for folks who are white male uh, folks who are straight right um oftentimes and so this is the this so the intercultural model is sort of one part of the stream of becoming cultural fluent culturally fluent or more fluent the other stream is the power and privilege stuff it's understanding how racism and sexism and homophobia and you know the gender binary system and all of that influences things as well and and, and what i often find when we're having that conversation we're like well i don't want to talk i don't I don't ask people about those things because I'm afraid I want to make a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the, I think one of the biggest fears that most men have is being called sexist. And I think one of the biggest fears most white folks have is being called racist, right? Because we think of ourselves as good, we're trying to do good, we're trying to be good, and that just like, and where do I go with that? How do I, how do I mount a defense against what I just said was offensive? Of course, people try and it doesn't generally work very well. Um, and so, so it, takes, it takes a certain courage. It takes a certain humility to show up in areas that we're not completely comfortable with. Now, there are ways for us to learn. I don't think we should be learning on the backs and the lives of our students. Like, I don't think we should just go off and just make lots of mistakes, particularly with people who, whose lives we're responsible for, or where we have the power in the room. Um, and I make mistakes, you know, this is what I do for a living and I make mistakes. I make mistakes around race. I make mistakes around gender. I make, I make mistakes. And so part of this is also about the self-acceptance to go, I'm not perfect, but I don't need to be. And I'm willing to risk making a mistake and being ready to apologize for it in order to create more connection. Because if, if I don't open myself up to be someone who's willing to ask about who other people are, to be curious, then I'm really sending a message, you're okay as long as you don't show yourself to be any different than what I'm comfortable with. And that's a problem. That's, that's the opposite of what Diana said we need to be doing in our classrooms. And so part of it is saying, you know, I don't know what that's about. Can you tell us about that? Right? Not, oh, I have two black kids in the classroom and so they're gonna be the guest speakers in February. Like, it's not about making our kids become the teachers, right? That's a problem too. Yeah. But it's about 
but it's about being willing to make mistakes. So I, I, that's what I'm hearing in your question is mm-hmm. this piece about we need to be, we need to have the humility and we're going to make mistakes, folks. Like that's human. That is human. And if we have enough humility, self-acceptance and courage, then we can thank the person for helping us learn something, apologize for making the mistake, and then do our very best not to make that mistake again. Um, Thank you. That's exactly what I was asking. And as you were talking, it also reminds me, uh, teachers need to um, have some professional development on mental health and speakers as well for mental health. It's one of those topics where, you know, it just maybe gets people a little bit tense talking about, and it, it, it sounds to me like the same thing with, um, with being culturally fluent or um, being more culturally fluent is talking about an uncomfortable um, subject or topic or knowing that there is a chance that you might offend unintentionally but being okay with being vulnerable and going into it in more of taking on a curiosity approach and then being able to apologize once you know better, you know, and then you do better afterwards. So thank you for that. Um, so I know um, I, I didn't say this at the beginning of the video and I wanted to make sure that I addressed it. The culturally competence training or the requirements put out by Palsby our conversation right now is but a tiny, tiny sliver of what is to be um, to to be learned and delved into and really grappled with and 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 gone through. So I wanted to make sure that this by no means satisfies the um, cultural competency full requirements, and that any of the viewers and or listeners um, might be able to reach out to you, Diana and Kevin, to be able to um, work with you on setting up deeper, further training and and that sort of a thing. Is that correct? Yes. Go ahead, Kevin. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it sure is. Um, That that training is generally um, by Pelsby considered to probably take um, eight hours, maybe a little bit less, but really it's sort of an eight hour training. it covers a whole bunch of different, what I'll call social identities, ways that we are identified socially. So around race, gender, disability status, um, ethnicity, a whole range of ways in which, which sort of those systems of power um, hier- create hierarchy for people, you know, place people on hierarchies. Um, it involves a lot of understanding one's own frame, one's cultural lens, as Diana, um, has framed it, um, and and systems, and how do we then change things with that are within our power? And and I recognize teachers don't get ultimate, you know, con- complete control over what happens, what they teach, how they, you know. So so let's recognize they're working within systems. So it's just really important. Whenever I'm working with people and they're like, "Yeah, but I'm in a system," I'm like, "Yeah, that's the that's the point. There's a system." But teachers are also able to have perhaps understand if they can develop their own lens to see where that system is biased, where that system isn't inclusive, then they're in a, a particularly good place to inform the changes that need to get made. But developing that lens is the first step because otherwise you can go in and go, yeah, it works for me. Well, works for me as a white male isn't 
a sufficient litmus test of whether it works. Did you want to add, Diana? No, I think you said it very well. Um, so I think what you just touched on is a great segue to talk about why. You know, I mean, we can say it's required, <laughs> but that doesn't internalize for people, for teachers um, that, you know, see, okay, well, I got to get this, I got to check this box off really and I mean, I know we talked about what does it mean to be culturally competent, and I'm trying to use culturally fluent more than I say culturally competent. Um, we talked about what does that mean? What are some things that we can do to expand and to grow and, and to reflect on our own lens and our, our frames of reference? So why? That's the big thing. And I always know that with educators in learning, even with talking with students and, and, and working with them, you, you really want to start with the why because then they connect to the reasoning and what is to become of this newfound awareness or knowledge. So could either of you speak to that a little bit more as why such, a, such an in-depth training or such an in-depth um, topic is needed? Um, I'll, I'll start off with that one. We have a increasingly diverse student population. Um, our demographics in the nation are changing. Um, families are changing. What is, uh, I don't want to say necessarily acceptable, but, but people are being more who they are. And school needs to respond to that as well, particularly I think when it comes to transgender issues and gender issues and things like that. Um, people are being encouraged to be who they are. So when we're talking with, with young people and with students, we need to create that that environment in school as well. It's okay to be whoever you are. Of course, we have rules, you know, we still have rules in school, um, you know, to keep students safe and that sort of thing, but, but we need to make space for students to be who they are. We're seeing an increase in the, um, some people call it the achievement gap, some people call it the opportunity gap. And what we're seeing in that is, in addition to the racial disparities that we've seen for ever, really, um, there's also now a socioeconomic disparity. So there are um, lower income dominant society students who are falling between the cracks, who are losing it. And that's part of culture. Again, it's not just race, it's not ethnicity, it's all of those things combined. It's also just whatever your lifestyle is and how you live your life. And we have so much more diversity perhaps than we did um, previously. And with research methods, teaching methods have changed and teachers go to school for professional development and we've got CEU credits that we need to do to keep up on the research and, and these new techniques and those new techniques. And this is just another way for us to better connect with our students, with the student population to make school engaging. Our dropout rates are, you know, for students of color in Minnesota, not good. Um, and so we need to look at are students dropping out or are we pushing them out? What is happening in our school system? Why, when the, the reading disparity in reading um, comprehension is pretty even until you get to about third grade. And then when you get to third grade, it gets wider and wider and wider and wider. What is happening in school? And how can teachers and how we relate to our students and how our systems are built help that? So I think that um, making the training you know required is, it seems kind of harsh maybe for some people, um, but we need to look at why are we teachers? We're teachers to serve students. 
and this is a better way to get to know our students and to see the value of everybody coming into the classroom. One of the things as through our um, earlier conversations that reminded me, I went to a training um, at a tribal college and the uh, introduction, one of the, the ladies was introducing the college and this is what the college is about. And she said something to me that just so uh, resonated inside of me and I've always remembered it. And it was, um, she said, when you come into this school, you are Ojibwe. When you leave this school, you are still Ojibwe. However you came in is the way that you leave. And because our school system and our society for so long has been cookie cutter. And as I said earlier, you leave who you are at the door, you come in, whatever, and you all leave the same. And that is part of what we're seeing through research is pushing students out and, and distancing them from the relevance of school and the curriculum and having teachers being able to recognize, oh, this is kind of what's happened. And sometimes you don't know until you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is a way to, to help teachers um, and school districts realize the importance of when I walk in this classroom as a teacher, who I am is going to be part of who these children are and how can we moderate that and use that to the best advantage. I was actually, so I would like Kevin, if you can expand on that thinking, maybe not in terms of why teachers, but education is, is the, I mean, it's, it, we're preparing the future, uh, you know, as educators. So why from a community or public standpoint, then what does, what, what does um, having those who work in education go through these trainings and and expand and and really start to understand how essential it is for them to know who they are serving and to accept and celebrate them what does that mean for when these kids are out of school sure sure so one of the things we got to one of the skills we want to develop in children in adults as well, but because we're thinking about students at this point, um, is the ability to operate in multicultural settings. So I do a lot of, you know, I've been a college professor for about 20 years. And at the collegiate level, um, we're having the same conversations as we're having at the K-12 level in terms of how do we reach students and what students are we reaching well already? And how do we reach students that we aren't reaching well? And when we bring diversity or equity or inclusion efforts into schools, sometimes people think it's about those kids, like those kids who are different, the, sort of the marginalized communities. And, and what we're failing to recognize is that our diverse world and increasingly connected and increasingly diverse world is going to require increasingly that all of us have the skills to navigate around cultural similarity and difference particularly cultural difference. And so by, by helping our teachers develop more, you know, more thoroughly develop their skills, and I'm not gonna suggest that teachers don't have these skills, right? I'm gonna suggest that all of us can learn. And, and if, if, the, if the data is to be believed, and I, and I believe it, the vast majority of us are still operating out of a one, one size fits all kind of model. So by helping the teachers develop, it increases the likelihood that the students are developing the abilities to appreciate cultural difference. When Diana has students come in and say, tell me about who you are. 
Tell me about what you celebrate. What's important in your family? The, the students are developing, they're moving along that continuum. They're, they're building the capacity to see cultural difference and not judge it as good, bad, which is part of the early part that we didn't, didn't get around to you know, doing in detail. And so, so it prepares those students, those white students, those male students, those majority, those middle-class students, those you know, economically uh, privileged students as well to be able to operate in multicultural settings. So it's in everyone's, it's the community's best interest. In fact, it's not just best interest. Our community won't survive if, A, we only educate 40 to 60 to 70% of our population. Like, what's that gonna mean for your community? If 60%, 70% of your kids graduate from high school, but 30% don't, don't have a, a, can't operate at the 12th grade level as adults, what's that gonna mean for your community? And if those that do can only operate in majority culture centric spaces with cultural rules that fit and were designed generations and decades and ago by folks with power at the time, which again, still have a lot of power, white men, but in a world where the expectation is that um, that's not an okay way for us to continue to operate only from a white male cultural lens kind of framework. Thank you. Um, so I, we've been talking about edu educators specifically, individuals who have students, um, you know, in a classroom or who serve. And I am wondering, maybe just so this will be our, one of our final questions is more of the, um, the building, the administration, the system piece what is something that should be done right now by those who are serving teachers or supporting teachers to help start to get this going? Um, I, I know that one of the pieces that we wanted to talk about is, you know, how does the school assess if they, you know, where they are on this continuum? Because it sounds to me like it's, in, it's individual, it's going to be based, but I'm sure we'll be able to see some commonalities across the board. So from a higher standpoint of somebody who serves teachers who serve the students, what's something that people who are in right now um, roles with power should do to get that going? I think the most powerful thing that an administrator or a district can do is model the behavior, model the, um, the ideals. Um, I'm gonna tell another quick little story. Uh, I worked at a high school and there was a student group, student-led group that on their own decided to do an internal um, campus climate, cultural climate kind of a thing. So they wrote the survey, they got actually um, nearly 50% uh, response, which was fantastic. They took all of that information, they put it into all these charts and graphs and they did a presentation for staff and administrators did all of this on their own, their own idea. They had a teacher advisor, but they did all the work. They thought it up, they came up with the questions, they did the whole thing. Um, this is a school of about 1,200 students. Um, and so I went to the presentation, I was like, awesome, this is student run, this is gonna be great information to see where the students feel the school is when it comes to climate. There were two teachers there. Mm -hmm. They gave the presentation twice, once like during the lunch period, once right after school. Um, me and the other person that showed up was not even a teacher. 
um, he was, she was, he was a um, uh, paraprofessional that, that worked with a lot of students. Um, and so I had a great conversation with the students who did all of this work and they did their presentation for me and we talked about a lot of, a lot of the stuff that they came up with and that the survey showed. And I thought how, how uh, disappointing for the students and disappointing for me as a teacher to see that nobody else is really interested in what the climate of the school is and how these kids are doing. Um, so I think one of the most important things that, that administrators and districts can do is model that and prove, yeah, this is important and these are ways that we can do it. And attending you know, trainings like this, um, like the required training that Pelsby is, is requiring now is one way to get there because there are so many blind spots, um, so many things that because of our systems, we think, well, this is normal and everybody does it and this isn't offensive because everybody does it. So many blind spots in the way that our calendars are made and the attendance policies and the way that um, counselors counsel high school students as far as you know what career they might go into or what classes they might take. So much of that is is run by internal bias and systemic oppression that those systems need to change in order for it to kind of trickle down. So you got to kind of work it from both angles. Mm -hmm. I think you know the administration down when it comes to policies and enforcing policies and um, teachers and students bringing it up from the bottom. Yeah, Kevin, did you want to add anything at all? Yeah, so um, where I would have administrators start is understanding their own cultural lens. Like that's, that's everyone's work. That's everyone's work. Because an administrator operating out of minimization, one size fits all, will then expect all of their principals or all of their administrators or all of their directors to show up the same way. Probably how that person in charge you know, sort of likes to have information delivered, right? Or expects people to behave. Or so if that person expects eye contact, then, uh, then a principal or an administrator who doesn't give eye contact is evaluated through that powerful person's lens. So, so part of it requires them to do their own work. Um, and what I'm gonna echo what Diana said is that everything, all of our policies, all of our practices, can be mapped on this continuum. Is this a one-size-fits-all kind of approach? Hmm. So who, who does it serve well and who is it leaving out? Who is it marginalizing? Who is it pushing out, as Diana said? So we can do an, an, an equity audit. So, so sort of my perhaps little story here is that, um, so this is what I do professionally with organizations that choose to engage um, um, cultural fluency associates in, the, in this work, but as a citizen, I've been a part of now probably about four different equity groups that are current right now in our own community. We did an equity audit of the district as parents, staff, and community members. Um, so I guess your question was about what administrators do, but, but they can do that kind of audit. They can engage the conversation and it came out of, and that, and that audit involved asking parents and students and teachers and administrators, what do you see? Who's being left out? Where are the opportunities for this district to create better, better, more inclusion? So people can be willing to ask those questions. And, and I get, particularly in this era of COVID-19 right now that we're in, 
Um, so that's going to date this just a little bit, but that's why we're on screen, of course, yeah. instead of separate in our distance, in our, in our own loca locales. Um, but we, we're like, oh, we're going to put this aside for now. It's like, we don't have time to put this aside like we put African-Americans in February and Native Americans in November. Like this has to be what we're doing. This is the fabric of what we do as educators is we have to understand how have we built systems that serve some and don't serve others. So in order to see it, we need to develop the lens and then we need to start, have the courage to change how the systems work. Thank you. Um, so I know that I had mentioned that this is but one hour or so of a conversation that we need to dive even deeper into. Um, so for people who reach out to you, uh, is there anything else that you would like to add in terms of what they can expect from the full package of cultural competence training? I know you mentioned it's eight hours. You, you, you referenced it and you spoke a little bit to it. Are there any other pieces that you'd like to add so people know what they um, can expect with that? Kevin, I'll kind of let you take that one if it's okay. Sure, sure. I would say that um, they can expect to be respected. They can expect their knowledge to be sought and utilized for peer learning. Um, this isn't about Kevin and Diana sort of preaching from, if it's, you know, eventually we'll be doing these in rooms again, right? Eventually we're going to be at a place where we can gather with 40 educators and have this conversation for a day or two half days. Um, between now and then, we're working on developing a, a version of this that can be um, individually developed. We're, we're not there right now, but we're trying to respond to the current situation. Um, so, so they can expect to be engaged, um, invited into exploration of who they are, um, and from a place of not judgment. Like, it's not about this group of folks is wrong or bad. I mean, that's early continuum stuff. And we're not about replicating early continuum stuff to say, oh, and you're good and you're bad. It's like, it's not that the teachers are bad. It's not that the white teachers are bad. It's not the male teachers. It's that we all come from our cultural frameworks. And, and, some of, and there's parts of our frameworks that don't work well for everybody. So they can, they can expect to be invited in, to be respected, um, to, be, um, to be able to get at the roots of what I believe teachers go into teaching. So I have uh, my mother, um, actually, I have two moms. They're both teachers. Um, um, I have family members that are in the school systems uh, that are teachers. Um, every teacher I know, and the teachers my children have had, every teacher I know gets into teaching because they care about kids. This is about helping them do that better, helping them reach the students they have and the variety of students they have to do that better. So this isn't about, this isn't about someone, you know, it, it may feel like big brother, telling you, you got to do this. Um, I think about this as what a gift. What a gift that someone said, we are going to carve out the time to say, this is important to do. Let's get grounded in how we want to, what it takes to meet our students where they are to really, really serve our students well. I'm going to plug in for you too. Just I know we, we had a pre-meeting before um, this recorded conversation and I wanted to thank both of you so much for 
making me feel welcome and able to ask questions that I might have thought would be considered offensive or maybe I should know better already or you know know the answer so you have done a marvelous job just with this curious learner in allowing me to be vulnerable and ask questions and to and to learn um, so I have no doubt that um, further training is going to be just completely mind-blowing with you if people go in understanding that they are respected they are valued and what they have to bring to the table is going to be you know it, it's going to become part of the training you know itself too so thank you again both of you for allowing me to feel comfortable in in having this conversation with you and asking um, some questions um, so if now we're nearing the end if we or people who are viewing and or listening to this conversation right now would like to get a hold of you um, we'll start with diana what might be the best way that they can reach out to you i do have email diana.laurie at gmail.com um, and other than that um, i've been working closely with kevin and i, I kind of let him handle the, that piece of it for the most part and kevin how about you or your contact sure sure so my email is kevin at cultural fluency associates all one word dot com um, and the website which again similar cultural fluency associates dot com um, there's a website there there's a page on that that says k-12 cultural competency it's up in the upper banner there's a there's a page just that for that and it has diana's and i both of our our bios um, it has a link to to email me um, because this is what I, because Diana's a full-time teacher as well as doing this, um, it works better for me to manage the communications and to do all those kinds of, you know, those, those tasks fall to me. And so um, that's why we have people go through the Cultural Fluency Associates um, website and or my email. Okay. And also um, there is the resource sheet that we will make sure that has that information. So for those of you who are viewing and or listening, the resource sheet button will have um, Diana and Kevin's contact information for you as well if you are not able to write any of that down right now. So in closing, um, thank you to both of you, Diana and Kevin, and thank you for taking the time to join our Learning Minnesota discussion with Diana Lowry and Kevin Scora brown on the topic of cultural competency. Don't forget to visit our site, www.learningminnesota.com, for additional resources on this particular topic and more videos in our resource library. Thank you.